Tonight we consider together the Ten Commandments as we make our way through the ABCs of Reformed theology, so biblical doctrine. We've been going through this series for a few months now, and we find ourselves on T. T is for the Ten Commandments. And if you'd like, you can find, we won't be reading all of it because it's quite long, but you can find in the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 19, which is of the law of God. At various times tonight, I will draw our attention to this faithful summary of what God's word teaches us regarding the law of God. That's found on page 930 of the Trinity Psalter hymnals. I remind you that last week, as I mentioned in the prayer, last week we considered S is for sanctification, that big word which means the the transformative process by which the Holy Spirit of God is conforming us into the image of God from one degree of glory into another. And we can ask ourselves in response, well, what then is the image of God that we are supposed to reflect, that the Spirit of God is transforming us more and more into, that he is working into our lives? What is the image of God? And that question can be answered in a variety of ways, but one way to consider who God is, what he is like, is by looking at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, they reveal to us the very character of God because they are a reflection of his own nature, of his own being, what he delights in and what he is opposed to. And so, I will invite you now to listen to the word of God here from Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 21. This is where Moses is revealing uh, the word of God, the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel after they were redeemed from Egypt and the oppression and slavery there brought to Mount Sinai. And God spoke all these words to Israel, saying, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
And when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and the smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So far, the reading of God's word. May the Holy Spirit add his blessing to it as we consider it and meditate on it this evening. So I want to first start off with this question. How is it that most people think of the Ten Commandments? What comes to mind when they hear the Ten Commandments? You know, Christians or unchristians alike. You know, I think a lot of people see them only as a list of kind of arbitrary prohibitions or sort of ancient socially constructed taboos for a society that are no longer applicable today. And so basically they assume that God is this kind of cosmic killjoy out to set us against things that we might enjoy. But that is not true at all. As the Westminster Confession of Faith here in Article 19, if you're looking at it, says in the second part, they reflect the moral, the, this moral law of God was first given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the Ten Commandments, they reflect that same moral law of God, which continues to be a perfect rule of righteousness. And as such, was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, the first four containing our duty towards God, And the other six are duty to man. And so we looked at and listened to the Ten Commandments. And those first four all speak of our relationship to God, how we are to honor and serve him, how we are to love him above all else. And the last six refer to our relationship to one another, to our neighbor, how we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we see the purpose is for them to be this perfect rule of righteousness. They show us, therefore, the way in which we ought to live, but at the same time, they also show us how we fall short of that righteousness, how we sin and are in need of grace. And so the reformers during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, they spoke of various uses of the law of God, and they spoke primarily of three. Well, they spoke of this first use of it being a normative purpose, having a normative purpose as a norm or a standard for us to live by. And in that way, we see that the Westminster Confession of, of Faith says that they serve, these Ten Commandments, serve God's people as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly. And so it's setting out before us this, the way in which we ought to walk, the way in which we ought to reflect the character and nature of God. And so they serve as that norm, that standard, that rule of perfect righteousness for us. That's one purpose, one use of the law. The third use, or the the first use rather of the law is the pedagogical law, the pedagogical purpose, which is a teaching purpose. And in this It's speaking of what Paul mentions, the Apostle Paul and Romans and Galatians in his letters in the New Testament of how God designed the law to drive us to our need of forgiveness 
and the grace that is found in Christ alone to show us our need of God's grace that is in Christ alone. And so we consider, as the Westminster Confession says, that that it, it allows us or drives us to discover the sinful pollutions of our nature, our hearts and our lives. And so as examining themselves thereby, so as we examine ourselves according to this perfect law of God, we may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin and together with a clear sight of the need that they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. And so we have, we've considered two uses of the Ten Commandments or the law of God. That normative law, it's this rule of life for us, directing us in the way which we ought to walk. But it also serves as that perfect mirror. So think of it in that way. It's this mirror that we stand in front of. And I often say this, but um, this mirror that reveals to us all of our flaws, reveals all of our shortcomings, how we do not match up with the perfect uh, image of God. We do not reflect him Rightly, And so we are in need of grace. And in that way, it's driving us to humility to find the grace that is in Christ alone. And that, that, uh, that purpose, the pedagogical purpose, is found especially in Romans 3, verse 21, where the Apostle Paul says that it is through the law that we have knowledge of sin, that, we, that our conscience is struck and pricked by our sinfulness, And so we realize that we are indeed sinners in need of grace. So God's law shows us how we fail to reflect his perfect image. And so we see that by considering these two purposes, that the law of God is not just a list of prohibitions. They serve these holy purposes. And this is also found in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 4. So after redeeming Israel from Egypt and setting them free from the slavery and oppression there, God gave Israel his law at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, and many other commandments in addition to that, so that Israel would shine as a city of peace and justice. He wanted them to be this city upon a hill in the midst of barbaric pagan nations so that they would shine with justice and righteousness among the nations, to show the nations the God that they serve, reflecting the character of the God that saved them out of Egypt. And so we can hear this, this purpose of God's law in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, where it says this, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me. This is Moses speaking. So that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way their Lord, their God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you? today. And so it had this holy and beautiful purpose of of laying out before them, uh, the people of Israel, the way in which they ought to walk to shine brightly as, as salt and light in the world, displaying to the nations that the God that we serve is a just God. He is righteous. He cares about justice. He cares about what is good, beautiful, and true. 
And so God set before Israel his law and that task as well. But it was not an easy task in any way. God knew that the temptation before them to conform to the ways of society as they entered into the land, the Canaanites, that that was going to be a strong pull, always pulling them further and further away from him in the wrong direction to conform to the ways of the world around them. And so that it was a strong temptation for Israel, and it's still a strong temptation for us today. And God warned them, therefore, with these negatives that we find here, these negative prohibitions to not participate in or condone what is wrong, what is evil, what is darkness, all that is opposed and contrary to God and his design for creation. And so they they reveal to us, as we consider them, they reveal sin. And sin is to act contrary to the character of God, to Miss the mark is literally what the word in the Greek means, to miss the mark of reflecting his perfect image. We all fall short of the glory of God, as Paul says in Romans. We like to run our life the way we want to and do the things that we want to, and sin is that violation, the violation of any of God's perfect commands. But also sin is to not, not only to, to violate negatively his commands, but it's also to not fulfill the righteousness, to not do and observe what is good, beautiful, and true according to God's perfect rule of righteousness, to not, as Deuteronomy says here, observe his laws carefully and wisely, to fail to be just, to fail to be righteous, to fail to love God, to fail to love our neighbors, that is sin as well. And that's why we find in the New Testament, our Lord Jesus summarizes the moral law of God, these Ten Commandments, saying in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, in response to someone asking him the question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What was Jesus doing there? He is summarizing the Ten Commandments, breaking them down, simplifying them into two commandments. So those first four commandments, which deal with and uh, are uh, related to our relationship with God, how we ought to love and serve him. Well, those are broken down and simplified into what Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And then that second table of God's law with respect to our relationship to our neighbors, the last six commandments are summarized with that command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so Jesus, we find in the New Testament, he did not abrogate or end the moral law of God. He did not set up something different, something else. In Matthew 5, 17, he clarifies that saying, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets because some were claiming and accusing him of that. Oh, he's coming to abolish the law and do away with it. And he says, no, I haven't come to do that. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to fulfill them. So Christ himself came and he submitted to the whole law of God and fulfilled them in every way. The only one, as we just sang, who perfectly obeyed all of God's laws from every moment of his life, from the beginning to the very end, he completely fulfilled God's law. So with that said, are we no longer under the law, but under grace? 
You know, that's what Paul says in Romans six fourteen. What does that mean? He says, you are no longer under the law, but under grace. So in what sense are we no longer under the law of God? We have to consider that. Well, we are no longer under the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law of God. And here we need to pause and remember that when the New Testament speaks of the law of God, it's not only referring to the Ten Commandments, but to the many other commandments that God gave in addition to the Ten Commandments to structure all of Israel's life as a theocratic nation, their, their political identity, and also their cultic identity with the temple and the sacrifices and all of those ceremonial laws related to it. So that means this, that we are no longer to set up or call to set up a theocratic government here on earth uh, as the church. That's not our goal. Our mission is not to set up a, a theocracy here on earth, and neither are we to set up temple worship offering sacrifices like Israel was supposed to do according to the law of God in the Old Testament. So those aspects of the Mosaic law have been fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. He came and fulfilled those things and has, in a sense, done away with those things by fulfilling them. And this is what one scholar theologian says in relation to that. G.K. Beale writes, we may say that those moral laws not related to the so-called civil and cultic functions, carry over into the church age. But why does this part of Israel's law carry over while the ceremonial and civil parts do not? Well, the answer to why the ceremonial laws do not apply is this. They are typologically fulfilled in Christ. For example, Christ is the true and final end-time priest and sacrifice. And so... A priesthood that offers sacrifices is no longer needed. Christ came to be that ultimate high priest who offered himself into the Holy of Holies, his own body as a sacrifice to atone for all of our sins. Therefore, we do not need any other priest or high priest outside of Christ. We do not need any more bloodshed sacrifices because Christ shed his blood for us to atone for all of our sins once and for all. And therefore, those ceremonial aspects of the law of God with respect to the temple worship have been done away with because Christ fulfilled them perfectly. And not only that, but now that Christ has established his kingdom here on earth and it's continuing to extend to over all the creation and not only in Israel's land and the geopolitical nation of Israel is no longer um, established by God's law, so to speak, those laws that were particular to the regulation of life in the land, their civil life together, are no longer necessary either. And so we see that in the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law, those things have been done away with because Christ fulfilled them. But the moral law of God still abides, the Ten Commandments. But there's another aspect in which we are no longer under the law, but under grace, as Paul says. We are no longer under the condemnation of God's moral law if we are found in Christ by faith. And that's one of the strong points that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1 through 4, where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation. 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now we can pause there and consider that implies that for those who are outside of Christ Jesus, who do not believe in him, that condemnation still lies upon them. And in fact, we are all born in sin and children of wrath, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians. And so what, what this is speaking of is that by violating God's law, by not reflecting his perfect character, by disobeying his commands, we all deserve, all of us deserve the just punishment of God, his condemnation. But Paul is saying there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so how is it that we are no longer under the just condemnation of God's law just by having faith in Jesus Christ? How is that possible? How do we escape God's just punishment, which we all deserve? Well, Paul told us right there in the middle of that text, he says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What does that mean? It means that when God gave to the people of Israel the law, he knew that they could not obey it fully. Why? Because he knew that we are all polluted and stained with sin. He knew that it was an impossible task now that we have sin corrupting our entire nature and every aspect and faculty of it. We cannot fulfill the law of God. We are weakened in that sense. And so we cannot earn perfect righteousness. We cannot enter into God's glory, into his kingdom by works of the law. Instead, all that we earn and deserve according to the law is condemnation. And so we cannot do it on our own by works of the law. So what has God done? Well, God has done this. He says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Well, this is astonishing. This is, this is amazing what the Apostle Paul is saying here, that whereas we fail to obey God's perfect laws, each and every one of us, we are weakened by our own sinful flesh. God sent his own son, which is what we're celebrating in this Christmas season. He sent his son incarnate in, in our human flesh. Why? For what purpose? So that in our human flesh, he could obey the entirety of God's law for us, earning for us the blessing of his inheritance, glory, entrance into the kingdom of God. But how is it that we escape from God's judgment, his condemnation? Well, Paul said it. God condemned sin, our sin, in the flesh. Whose flesh? The flesh of Christ. And so the very punishment and condemnation that each of us Deserve for violating God's commands, for disobeying him, for ignoring him, for not loving him above all else, and for not loving our neighbors as ourselves. Christ took the punishment for us on the cross. He suffered in our place out of love in order to free us from that condemnation that we all deserve. Now, what was the end goal of this, according to the Apostle Paul. Well, he also says that the end goal, the purpose of this 
of God sending his own son to fulfill the law and then suffer in our place the condemnation we deserve is so that in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so what does this mean? It means that he saved us from the law's demands for justice, our condemnation that we deserve. He was condemned in our place. So that no longer hangs over us. Why? So that now by the spirit, we can freely serve God out of love and gratitude without fear of punishment, without fear of God's wrath and anger, but instead knowing that he loves us, knowing that he has done the utmost to save us by sending his own son, which is why we, we, we consider uh, in James, in his letter, that he calls the law of Christ, the very moral law of God, the law of liberty, the law of liberty. And how is that so? It's because we have been set free from the fear of punishment. And so now it's liberating. We can love God and love our neighbor as ourselves without fear of punishment. We don't obey and serve God just because we're trying to avoid punishment. No, we're responding to God's love with thankfulness in our hearts, wanting now to serve him and honor him for his great love that he has shown us. And in that way, we see that the good news of what God has done for us in Christ in the gospel changes our relationship to the moral law of God. It's no longer this thing that speaks only of our failures and speaks of the condemnation that we deserve, but now knowing that we have been set free from that condemnation because Christ was condemned in our place, now now we are inspired by the Spirit to obey God out of gratitude and thankfulness in our hearts. Now, as we consider our new relationship to the moral law of God as we are found in Christ, it does not change the moral law of God. God's law has not changed in its essence, in its substance. Why? Well, the moral law of God, as we stated in the beginning, it cannot be abrogated or changed in any way. Why? Because it is grounded upon the divine nature itself. It is based on the changeless imperfect nature and character of God who does not change. He is always the same. And therefore, God's law is still the same today. It's just our relationship to it has changed dramatically because of what God has done for us in Christ in the gospel, which is why the Westminster Confession of Faith, Article 19, in the very last part, if you have that open, you can find that on uh, the section seven there. It says this, that neither are the uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. And so we see again that the law is always should always be put before us as we consider the law of God uh, each Sunday and as we read the scriptures. The law shows us our constant need of God's forgiveness in Christ. It drives us to grace, to find salvation in Christ and in him alone. But it also shows us that perfect rule of righteousness by which now through the spirit we are enabled to obey the law of God more and more and to do so freely and cheerfully without fear of punishment, knowing that Christ 
has been condemned for us. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So may our consideration of the gospel and our new relationship to the law as we are found in Christ, may that enable us and strengthen us and encourage us to obey God's Ten Commandments, all of his good and righteous laws, all the more to his honor and glory. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time to consider your holy law, this perfect rule of righteousness that you set before us. It has various uses. It shows us the way in which we ought to walk, the good, beautiful, and true way that reflects your own nature. And also it shows us our need of grace and forgiveness because as we stand before it and evaluate our lives, we realize that we fall short, that none of us, none of us um, perfectly reflects your image. None of us complies with all that is found in your law. And so throughout our life, we are always in need of your grace that is found in Christ. And we rejoice that what we cannot do now as we are polluted and stained by sin. We cannot do in our own flesh, by works of the law, what we can't do, you have done for us. You sent your own son who fulfilled all of your law's demands in our place, in our human nature. And he was our substitute who was condemned in our place, suffering the punishment and the wrath that we deserve, satisfying your perfect justice so that now, In him, by faith, we are free to cheerfully obey you out of gratitude with our hearts. Give us that thankfulness in our hearts that even this week we might continue to obey you more and more with cheerfulness, with joy in our hearts. May that be the case. In Jesus' name, amen.